folks. Um, this, is, uh, this is a little different for me, for sure. Um, I'm used to being your host from time to time, so um, I'm going to be a little bit nervous, but that's okay. Um, I've got my kids on the other end of the line here saying, woohoo, go dad, thank you kids, I love you too. Um, yeah, this is, uh, this is a different morning. Uh, I get to wear this really cool microphone, and I got to sit in the pastor's chair. Um, so that's, that's a good start, I think. And, um, but Crystal, you know, when I walked in this morning, she said, Dave, she said, I don't think I've ever seen you dressed up that much. So I'm just going to, uh, uh, you know, kind of chill it down a little bit. I'll roll the sleeves up, okay? Um, and uh, don't worry, um, guys at the back, I am not going to break into dance. That will never, never happen. So Springvale, thanks, and Crystal, thanks so much for giving me the opportunity um, I do uh, relish this moment. And as has been mentioned, I'm a, a missionary, um, missionary with an organization that actually is pretty well represented in this church, Youth Unlimited. And uh, so Spring Valley, I just want to thank you on behalf of all of those that you saw and on behalf of myself and uh, the team that I work with. Um, as they said, I'll echo, we cannot do, in fact, no missionary can do what God has called us to do uh, without people like you individually and churches like Springvale behind us. Well, for those of you who know me, um, you may have heard me use this uh, verse from time to time. You know, some people talk about having um, <clears throat> life verses. Some of you may have those. Um, I actually don't have one. I've got a few that are sort of favorites, but here's one that's, that really echoes uh, most days. Proverbs 27:17. Some of you know this, I'm sure. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And so I want to do that today a little bit. I want to sharpen you. I want to encourage you in your journey with Jesus. But I also want to challenge you to consider maybe in 2024, taking some bolder steps as you walk with him. So as we unfold this, um, here's, here's what I want to do. Uh, I just want to give you a brief introduction to my personal journey. Uh, thank you, uh, Crystal, you stole some of my thunder. So that's actually not a bad thing because I won't run quite as long and I won't have to worry about Rob doing the audio hook. Um, I also want to tell you a little bit more about uh, Youth Unlimited and give you an update on uh, kind of what's on there. And then finally, I want to do a really high altitude, high speed flyover of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, ready to go? Good, thank you. I heard that back there. Um, I needed that. Okay, so uh, just quickly on the family, we've been here for 31 years. Uh, 31 years, in fact, in January. Uh, when we moved into this area that many years ago, uh, we made Springvale our home right away. And uh, um, it's been a place that we have loved to grow. Our kids have grown here, and uh, we continue to love this place. Um, except for our dog, Milo, Wendy and I are now empty nesters. But the kids are indeed relatively close. Uh, ben and Tori are in Bradford with their girls, Zosha and Gabriella. Melissa still lives here in town. Um, Chris and his wife, Bianca, and their two kids, Kendon and uh, Marie, live in Ajax. And Rob and his wife, Sydney, live in Hamilton. And let me tell you, when we all get together as a family in our relatively compact townhouse, um, it's a zoo. But hey, who doesn't love a trip to the zoo, right? 
Although I was confirmed in the United Church um, early on, um, it wasn't until I was 19 that I discovered who Jesus really was, and I discovered him through a new and now lifelong friend. Two years, I, two years later, uh, I headed off to university, I took my business degree there, and uh, shortly after that, I met and married Wendy um, just before graduation. Following graduation, we moved to Toronto. Crystal mentioned this. I started my career in IBM. And life unfolded the way one might hope. We bought our first home. Um, we had our first two kids, Tori and Melissa. And then IBM moved me to, and Wendy and our girls to Calgary for a four-year tour of duty. And we had a blast, I gotta tell you, I actually really wasn't super psyched about coming back here. Um, but family was all here. And family, of course, as we know, is incredibly important. But we loved Calgary so much, we brought back some important souvenirs. We brought back two mountain bikes, a trailer that we hauled the girls around with, and we brought back Chris, number three. I departed IBM shortly after we returned to Ontario, and I worked for, as Crystal mentioned, a number of smaller enterprises, and at one point was in my own thing as a, kind of a standalone consultant. During those years, uh, Robbie, our fourth, came along. At the age of 50, the Holy Spirit body slammed me. And he's doing so again. Okay, grab it together, Dave. Here we go. In an intensely, I mean intensely, emotional moment, second only to my original salvation experience, um, God seemed to be calling me to significant leadership within the Christian ministry, a vocational role in the Christian ministry. It took me five more years to figure out what that actually looked like. And in another remarkable moment, God seemed to say, take all your experience, all your skills, all your gifts, your passions, your dreams, and put them on the altar. And then he said these words, enable the next generation. Well, I wasn't exactly sure what that meant, so I phoned a friend, a friend in Youth Unlimited, in fact, and I simply asked these questions, or this question, can you use a guy like me? <laughs> well, the rest is history. I just got my 10-year pin the other day, and uh, I'm the executive director, as Crystal mentioned, of Youth Unlimited Highlands Youth for Christ in, uh, in Orangeville. So enough about me. Let me give you a quick um, look at, at uh, what Youth Unlimited in Highlands looks like. The first thing I want to say, I said it before, but I'll say it again, and I'll probably say it again at the end of this message. We could not do the work we do without individuals like you and without churches like Springville. So thank you very much. Um, Youth Unlimited, whether it's our Youth Unlimited in Highlands, whether it's Toronto Youth Unlimited or whether it's across this country, Youth Unlimited exists for this one reason. Every youth living fully in Christ the next thing I just want to give you is uh, a few thoughts about what Youth Unlimited in Highlands particularly is about. We started in uh, 1977. We're in our 47th year of sharing the love of Jesus with kids across central Ontario and Muskoka. The trademark 
Youth Unlimited, which actually causes few people to get twitchy, um, has been used actually in Canada for uh, many years in our major urban centers, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver. Um, they've been flying under that banner for over 20 years, in fact. And in 19, uh, sorry, let's try again. In 2020, we rebranded across the country so that all chapters are now operating under Youth Unlimited. Now, no fear. Jesus is still at the core of what we do. We simply changed our name to allow for a slightly less friction as we interact with our increasingly secular culture. It's a little challenging to try to get into the local high school to say, hi, I'm here from Youth for Christ. In today's world, sadly, that will actually slam the door in your face more than it'll open it but Youth Unlimited gives us an opportunity to at least get our foot in the door and then share who we are. Highlands is a mid-sized chapter. We currently have a staff of about 14, and uh, we are one of over 35 Youth for Christ, Youth Unlimited chapters across Canada. And Canada is part of the YFC International Organization. We are serving in 120 different countries around the world, and some of those countries can't even be mentioned because of government restrictions. Last year, with a staff of 14 and uh, rather a lightly loaded uh, staff of 66 volunteers, uh, we made over 1,000 connections with youth across our region, and we have 52 youth in active discipleship. Starting in Orangeville, the chapter grew to uh, 10 communities um, just prior to COVID, and uh, we cover a swath of central Ontario that's about 20,000 square kilometers, so a fairly big chapter geographically. Um, our western boundary is Guelph, our northeastern boundary is Huntsville and Novar. And according to the latest census, there's about 100,000 youth aged 10 to 24 in that region. Today, we are only operating seven of those original 10 locations. And we are definitely in a season of rebuilding. So for all you leaders in the room, uh, rebuilding, not fun, huh? Um, shrinking is never something we aspire to. Whether it's demand shifts, whether it's staffing, whether it's financial shortages, these are daily realities of most organizations in 2024, and we are no different. I experienced many of those challenges, in fact, during my business career, so I guess it seems only fitting that God would have me here at uh, Highlands for such a time as this. Can I share two more important words with you? But God. Isaiah 55, uh, 8 and 9 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. At Highlands, we actually remind ourselves on a regular basis, especially when things are a little challenging, we say, this is God's business. And we also fervently believe that God is good. So as a result, we can confidently say what Paul says, all things will work out for good as we live into and according to Jesus' purpose. So, Shrink to facilitate scalability and sustainability. Rebuild to achieve greater impact. Sure, Lord, bring it on. The third thing I just want to share with you very quickly and importantly is that we are an extension of the church. We're not a replacement of the church. 
I love how one of my staff puts it. She says this, we'll catch them, you clean them, and God will do the rest. She likes fishing. Well, it's a Jesus thing too, right? Um, Hey, look, don't write me emails. I know that um, theologically, to be accurate, it's God who does the cleaning. I get it. But here's the point. The church plays a crucial role in the discipleship journey of the kids that we serve, and it provides a wider and supportive community for those youth. So ideally, what we aspire to do is help kids find Jesus and then help them find Jesus their own Springvale. So in fact, we believe the idea of partnership is so important, we won't even enter a community if we don't have churches like Springvale that say, we're with you, we're behind you, we support you. Whether that's financially, whether that's in prayer, whether that's people, we need that support. And we won't enter communities without it. And sadly, I have to tell you that sometimes we're invited into communities because of very real need and we don't have the church support and so we won't go in. So I've told you a little bit about our history, our current rebuilding. I want to tell you a little bit about um, how we do what we do. Youth Unlimited is at its core intensely relational. We take our cues from Jesus and it's highly entrepreneurial. This simply translates into the fact that regardless of what community we go into, it's not a cookie cutter thing. We don't roll out a bunch of little McDonald's. Uh, In fact, what we do is we simply take a look at that community, take a look at the youth that are in that community, and we attempt to meet their needs as best we can. And we call that the Jesus model. When you survey Jesus' approach, whether he went To them, or they came to him, he sought to meet their needs. He healed them, he consoled them, he fed them, he celebrated with them, and he also spoke to them about their spiritual needs. And that's exactly what we do. Employing highly relational staff and volunteers, we build relationships with youth, and we seek to meet their needs as best we can. And those needs can be significant. Some of the youth we serve face family instability, food insecurity. Some are wrestling with gender and sexuality. There are those that fear climate change. What will their world look like in the future? Racial discrimination and injustice swirls around some of their schools and some of their communities. For older kids, worries about money and jobs starts to enter their thinking. And some turn to drugs and alcohol to escape escape the ugliness of that reality. And of course, we know that's not the answer. So can I stop here? I want to pretend to be Pastor Ed. I'm not sure where he is in the audience, but forgive me, Pastor Ed. I want to give a little caveat. I want to give a little warning, one that I frequently remind my staff at Youth Unlimited. We are commanded by Jesus to share the gospel with others. We, you, me, Youth Unlimited, this church, any church for that matter, but here's the important point. We are not in the conversion business, but Jesus is. So our job is simply to be salt and light in the world, to share the good news of Jesus, and then let the Holy Spirit do the rest. Get out of the way. So what's that good news? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Let me turn now to, uh, to Scripture for a few minutes. 
Last summer, when Regan Wingfield, our illustrious missions committee leader, asked me to speak today, the Lord seemed to impress that I should share some thoughts from Sermon on the Mount. And um, as I spent time in preparation, that conviction simply strengthened. So, with the Lord's help, let's go. Recently, a pilot was practicing high-speed maneuvers in a jet fighter. She turned to the controls, she pulled back on the stick, thought she was into a steep ascent, and flew straight into the ground. She was completely unaware that she was flying upside down. Author Dallas Willard in his book, Divine Conspiracy, says this, This is a parable of human existence in our times. Not exactly that everyone is crashing, though there is some of that. But most of us as individuals and the world society as a whole live at high speed and often with no clue to whether we are flying upside down or right side up. Indeed, we are haunted by a strong suspicion that there may be no difference, or at least that it's unknown or irrelevant. In the first few verses of the gospel, according to John, we read these words about Jesus. He says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. One writer paraphrased that last verse four this way. Life was in him, life that made sense of human existence. Dallas Willard comments, to be the light of life and to deliver God's life to men and women, where they are and as they are, is the secret of the enduring relevance of Jesus. Suddenly, they are flying right side up in a world that actually makes sense. I like those words, where they are and as they are. Jesus was accused of hanging out with sinners and tax collectors where they were and as they were. He talked with them. He walked with them. He ate with them, for goodness sakes, which, by the way, in that culture, meant that he unconditionally accepted them. That's why some of the religious leaders of the day really didn't care for Jesus. That's why they had it out for him. He was turning their idea of the world upside down. Hanging out with Jesus brought life, right side up life, in fact. It happened then and it still happens now for those willing to walk with him. So for the next few minutes, let's take that high-altitude, high-speed flyer over the Sermon on the Mount and draw a few applications for our world today. I want to look at it uh, through these uh, five lenses. The kingdom announced, the kingdom people, the kingdom contrasted with the law, the kingdom contrasted with daily life, and the kingdom embraced Someone has said that a text without a context is a pretext. And um, what does that mean? It simply means that if you lift a text out of Scripture without giving its context, you can make it say really whatever you want to say. So I don't want to be accused of that bad behavior. Pastor Ed will never let me on this platform again. And so let me give you a little bit of context of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew, a former tax collector read sinner, was now a follower of Jesus. 
And he was also a Jew. His book is written to the Jewish audience intended to help them see that Jesus, in fact, was the long-awaited Messiah who would bring about God's kingdom on earth, peace and deliverance to the Jew and Gentile alike. The Sermon on the Mount is the longest of Jesus' recorded teachings, and it's one of five teaching blocks or discourses uh, recorded in the book of Matthew. Jesus' teaching style that's recorded here and indeed in uh, the other Gospels as well uh, really had to lean into that oral tradition. People didn't have recording devices like we have today. They didn't even have writing devices like we have today. Um, so teachers had to do it in a way that was memorable. They had to use word pictures. They had to use examples from daily life. And Jesus was a master at doing so. The Jews in Jesus' day were a people group on a land that they had occupied for centuries. But they were now a colony of the Roman Empire. They were forced to scratch out a meager existence, and they were brutally oppressed by their occupiers. Roman soldiers could force a Jew to carry their load, and they couldn't refuse. Jewish farmers were forced to farm their own farms for the benefit of Rome, and they could only keep a small amount for themselves. People were desperate to get out from underneath the tyranny of Rome, so it's no surprise that freedom fighters called zealots sprang up from time to time and then were subsequently mercilessly put down by the Roman regime. Others, similarly desperate, in fact, turned to their scriptures, believing that if they fully lived by the Torah, God would actually rescue them. Against this backdrop, then, Jesus comes along and starts his teaching. Let me open the word here at uh, Matthew chapter 4, and I'm just going to read uh, verses 12 to 16. It says this, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way to the sea, along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Matthew gives some important information here about Jesus' movements, and then he links those movements to prophecy found in Isaiah 9.12. Remember, he was trying to convince his leaders or his readers, no, his hearers, that, um, that Jesus was in fact that long-awaited Messiah. And some of those verses there that we just read, you'll remember them. We often recite them at our Christmas time. Um, it's part of that whole, for unto us a child is born passage, you know the one. And then he records the purpose of Jesus' teaching, that Jesus was proclaiming a gospel message. Well, I'm going to try and pretend to be Pastor Ed again. Let me make another caveat. I think that we as evangelicals uh, often view the gospel a little narrowly. We fall into the trap of thinking of it as only a personal salvation thing. You know, we confess our sins, accept the Lord, our future is secured. As some have suggested, we have eternal fire insurance. And like any insurance policy, you pay for it, you put it in the drawer, and you ignore it until you need it. Little or no relevance to how we live our lives. 
So while that narrow thinking of the gospel is true in part, it's not the complete gospel. Let's see what Jesus says. In fact, we're going to take a look at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. A little more color added here. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Did you catch the difference? Matthew records Jesus saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Mark captures Jesus' words this way. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Let me share a couple of thoughts here. I think as we present the gospel, we too often miss this little word, repent. It's kind of a funny word. In Greek, that word is metanoia. It means change your mind. In the Old Testament, the equivalent in Hebrew is, uh, says this, turn around, turn back. Take a 180, or maybe to stretch our metaphor of flying upside down, flip over and fly right side up. I think we also miss the part about good news. The word gospel actually means good news. I like what Pastor Daryl Johnson from Vancouver says about this gospel. The kingdom of heaven has come near. The good news is the explosive announcement that the long-awaited kingdom of God is finally breaking into the present. And he goes on. The gospel, according to Jesus, is the announcement of a great fact, a fact that impacts every other fact. The gospel, according to Jesus, is that in him and because of him, history has reached a crisis point. The gospel, according to Jesus, is such good news, not only because our sins are forgiven, not only because we've been acquitted before the judge of the universe, not only because we are reconciled to our creator, not only because we've been adopted into the family of God, not only because we've been given the gift of eternal life, the gospel, according to Jesus, is such good news because in him, God's new world order is breaking into our brokenness. The gospel according to Jesus is such good news because in him, a divine revolution is now underway. Heaven is breaking into earth. That's the gospel according to Jesus. Jesus' gospel is good news. It's about righting wrongs. It's about turning the world right side up. It's absolutely countercultural. And that, my friends, is what I think we often miss when we present the gospel to our broken world. When we talk to young people today, you know what they find most attractive about this good news? It's not because it's true or because it's right or because it's written in this book. So many of them just have no clue of what's in this book. It's because it's good. The news is good. With so much bad in their world, finding something good and something that instills hope is absolutely life-giving. The gospel message was absolutely stunning to the first disciples. And as they repented, as they turned around, as they changed their minds, as they started flying right side up, it rocked their world. And you know what? It's rocked our world down through the centuries. And I want to tell you that if we take that gospel, 
and proclaim it with the further it's due, it can rock our world today. So takeaway number one, the gospel is more than salvation. It's about restoration. Sure, it's about saying yes to Jesus. Sure, it's saying, I want to follow you. But it's also about doing what he said and doing so being part of restoring our world, even now, according to God's original plan and design. So, having declared the kingdom of heaven is near, Jesus now turns his attention to what kingdom people look like. And I'm going to just read a few verses um, from chapter 5. Those verses you will recognize as the famous Beatitudes. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And blessed are you when people insult you persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Listen to what Daryl Johnson has to say. If we separate those beatitudes that I just read from the gospel that Jesus announced, they become either frustrating idealism or oppressive legalism. Why? It's because they make absolutely no sense. In that context then, and in our context now. And they are absolutely impossible to bring about by human effort. I want to say a little bit about this word blessed. You know, it falls into the category of words like sin and repent. We toss it around. We say things like, blessings on you, brother. Blessings on you, sister. Or we pronounce a blessing over someone. And while that's not a bad thing, the word here in the Beatitudes in Greek is makarios. And it's sometimes translated as happy. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. But that's actually too weak a translation. And furthermore, it puts the emphasis on the wrong uh, place. It's not about how we feel. It's not about us feeling happy. It's not a subjective evaluation. Rather, it's an objective, external evaluation said about us, or in this particular case, about the kingdom people who follow Jesus. It's not a statement of reward for something that we or someone has done. It's a statement of fact. Members of the kingdom of God are blessed in the present it's not something they have to wait for in the present. Said differently, it's God saying to his kingdom people that their lives, their attitudes, their actions are aligned with his desires and designs for this new world order that he was bringing about, that he wants to bring about through Jesus. But let's remind ourselves, we simply can't achieve those blessings with any kind of human effort. It's only by God's grace, and it's absolutely through the power of the Holy Spirit that we and those kingdom people of the day, th those attributes could be seen in them and in us. 
So takeaway number two, kingdom people are different than the culture in which they live. Let's return to our metaphor about flying right side up. Understand this. When everyone else is flying upside down and we fly right side up, we're going to get noticed. Let me turn our attention to the kingdom contrasted with the law. Chapter 5, verse uh, 17 and following. Remember the context. Not only were the people of the day laboring under the heavy load of Roman oppression, they were also loaded down by some of the religious teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. In fact, you'll remember, Jesus saved some of his strongest rebukes for the religious leaders of the day and the way they treated the people. So it's not hard to imagine that Jesus' followers uh, not only hoped that he would usher in a new kingdom rulership and kicked out the Roman regime, but that he might also lighten the load imposed upon them by the law. He sort of does, but it's not quite as they expected. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The word there in Greek, fulfill, actually means to consummate or to complete, to bring to completion. There's some more of that restoration language, turning the world right side up restoring what God originally intended for us. So let's our, turn our attention now to those famous, you have heard it said, but I say to you, starting with uh, verse 21, and I'm going to rip through these really quickly. You heard it said to the people long ago, do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Verse 27, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery. Verse 31, it's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 35, again, you've heard it said long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Verse 38, you've heard it said, Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Verse 43, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I want to jump off a couple of those and make some applications, I think, to what we're seeing in our culture today. Certainly not only amongst our youth, but also in society more broadly. Jesus' teaching on adultery here sets up other scriptural injunctions against sexual immorality. To say our culture today is hypersexualized might actually even be an understatement. Some have suggested that we have actually turned sexuality into our God. Everywhere we turn, TV, movies, music, advertising, social media, school curricula, sexuality is in our faces. It's literally impossible to avoid. 
Pornography is rampant across the internet, all ages, all genders, and gender confusion is becoming a major issue, particularly among young girls today. Furthermore, many denominations within the worldwide church have shifted their perspective on sexuality and the nature of marital union in particular. The first half of 2023 was very difficult for me and two of my senior staff members who'd been with us for many years. Staff who loved Jesus and for many years shared that love with the youth they serve. But they found themselves no longer comfortable with YFC's theological views on marriage, deeming our perspective as outdated and traditional, they resigned. Here's what I learned in that very difficult season. Our culture has lost the ability to have respectful discussions with those with whom we disagree. The rally cry for so many has been, um, has, uh, for what has been termed our cancel culture is this. If you aren't for us, you're against us. You're my enemy. Well, I think it's terribly unfortunate that we can't have productive discussions um, about differing opinions. Such polarizations are really not very happy, or not very uh, helpful. But folks, Jesus was very clear. However we define our enemies, we need to love them. We need to pray for them. The other thing that I learned in that very difficult season is this that there are sometimes people within our sphere that we find unsettling, different, unacceptable, or even maybe offensive to us. Their behaviors, their attitudes, their lifestyle, whatever it happens to be. But we individually and as a church collectively need to be very, very careful about judging. In fact, Jesus has a few things to say about that a little bit later on in Matthew. Can I suggest this? If the offending person in your sphere of influence is not a follower of Jesus, there's actually not an awful lot that you can say to them. In fact, the harmful things that we sometimes find ourselves saying will actually drive them further from Jesus. Of course, assuming we want to invite them to know who Jesus is. We don't want to drive them away. I think we need to be carefully look at Jesus' example. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. And as, had, as he had the opportunity to talk with them, not at them, he built relationships with them and he was able to speak life-giving truth into their lives. Folks, if we share Jesus' love with those around us, when they're ready to hear the truth about a particular thing that is the irritant for you, Share that truth, but please, please, please share it in love and respect. And then let the Holy Spirit do his best work, making them into new creations. I want to remind you what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. After listing some really ugly behaviors, he says this, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So I want to leave you with this reminder. We are not in the behavior modification business. Jesus is. Okay, 
Back to Matthew. Jesus ends this first study in contrast by sharing these really mind-blowing words. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he says this. The command, be ye perfect, is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. The prophet Ezekiel, speaking in chapter 36, verse 26, says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It's only as the Holy Spirit operates within us that we can live as kingdom people and live according to kingdom law. Let's turn to the kingdom contrasted within daily life, starting at uh, chapter 6. Here, Matthew records more of Jesus' famous contrasting statements. Now remember, Matthew is writing to a Jew's audience who would be reasonably well-versed in what the spiritual practices of the day looked like for uh, a Jew. So again, I'm going to rip through some of these very quickly. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. So when you give, do not announce it with trumpets. When you give, do it in secret. Verse 5. And when you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites. But when you pray, close your door, do it in secret. Verse 16. When you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do. When you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face so that it won't be obvious, and do your fasting in secret. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Do not worry about your life, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Do not judge, or you will be judged, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. As Jesus brings this second study of, of contrast to a close, he encourages disciples to ask God for what they needed, whether it's the practical necessities of life, or the strength to live as they should live. Takeaway number three, we cannot live the way Jesus calls us to live without the help of the Holy Spirit. Titus 3, 5 puts it this way, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of, the, of his mercy. He, he saved us, touch the wrong thing, bring it back, there we go. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. As we wrap up this flyover, let's look at that famous passage headed in our Bibles, the wise and foolish builders. Chapter 7, verse 24, Therefore, if everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on a rock, the rain came, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. 
But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. Takeaway number four is actually not a statement, it's more a question. Here's the question. On what foundation are you building your life? The bedrock of Jesus or the shifting sands of our culture and our personal desires? The consequences of making a wrong choice are significant. We will fall with a great crash if we choose foolishly. Or, to return to our metaphor, we will crash into the ground at a high speed and go up in a great ball of fire. Let's pray. Father God, may your transcendent love motivate us. Jesus, Son of God, may your word of truth guide us. Spirit of God, may your courage and strength fill us and empower us to faithfully follow Jesus, our Master, our Lord. And may we all proclaim together to the glory of God. Amen. Thank you so much.